Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well, including two Patreon-only podcast documentary series, an uncanny hour which looks at some of the overlooked gems and oddities of culture, like why humans continue to believe in alien visitation via UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and David Cronenberg, as well as our latest series, Tips for Existence, which is Robin Ince in conversation with scientists and artists about searching for meaning in a meaningless universe. Some guests on that show include Brian Green and Tim Minchin and Neil Gaiman and Andrean and Nicole Stott and Chris Jackson, Carlo Ravelli and lots more as well. And now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Sunday Science Q&A, or good morning, because I know some of you uh, may be watching in the US, or uh, hang on, oh yeah, if you're watching in Australia, well done for being up at this time, that's really impressive, and I'm sorry that you're having trouble with your sleep cycle. Uh, this is the Sunday Science Q&A, uh, as usual I'll be joined by Helen Chersky, and uh, we also have uh, two fantastic guests, we have Rachel Dunlop, and we have Susie Gage, I'll tell you more about them in a moment. Uh few things just in case you've not watched before if you want to ask a question during this then just go to the live chat or tweet us uh, this is all live now so over the next hour if something suddenly comes into your head we've got a huge number of questions already but we will try to get through as many of them as possible and we'll be dealing with lots of different things in this one we'll be dealing with the mind and medicine and uh, normally there's something about bubbles I don't think there's any whale poo today that seems to be in a quiet time for whale poo we went through quite a long period after the Christmas show the 24 hour show uh, dealing with whale poo questions because of something that that Helen uh, said, uh, but it's been a quiet time. So if you want to now start live chatting whale poo questions, that's great as well. Uh, a few things to tell you, there's been a slight delay in our next episode of Uncanny Hour. All the interviews have been done. It's just uh, that we've had some problems with uh, editing stuff, but the next episode of An Uncanny Hour, all about Doug Trumbull's fantastic movie, Silent Running, where we've got Stuart Lee and Mark Kermode and Gemma Arrowsmith and Linda Merrick and lots of others. Uh, that will be up very, very soon. And then we'll try and get back into uh, the normal rhythm of it. Also, Tips for Existence, the latest episode of Tips for Existence has Sarah Kendall on. If you've never heard uh, either series of Australian Trilogy that she did on Radio 4, you really should. I think it's one of the greatest pieces of storytelling that's ever been on the radio. It's a really remarkable piece of work. So I talked to her 
for tips for existence and also about things like uh misogyny on the comedy circuit uh in the, when she started out and kind of things that she's seen as well as a lot about uh creativity and uh about mental health and going to therapy and all manner of other stuff and this week's one that's coming up is adrian owen and adrian owen who's uh based in toronto is uh, a remarkable neuroscientist who's done a lot of work with a patient who have been in vegetative states and uh, a lot of the presumptions that have been made about actually the mental activity uh inside the brain and discovered uh sometimes with with really great and 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 properly life-changing results the fact that someone who appears to no longer have a sense of mind and of self that they are still active in there and a lot of his work done is is great so we're going to be talking to him for tips for existence uh we're going to be doing a show at the Cheltenham science festival uh which is uh the first week second weekend in june the Cheltenham science festival and uh i'm going to be doing a solo show uh about the nature of reality i'll fit as much as i can into an hour as usual and we're also going to be doing the night before on the saturday night the Cheltenham science festival we've got a live show with dean burnett Gemma Arrowsmith, Johnny Berliner, and uh, lots of others as well. Uh, latest book, Shambles, is with Yasmin Khan. That's up at the moment with me and Josie Long as well. Yasmin Khan's written a great book called Ripe Figs, um, which is both a book of cookery and also a book about uh, refugees and uh, about identity and lots of other things. Uh, it is a book that is both filled with things that are delicious and also with the things that are intriguing and enlightening. And, uh, and you can put that on the back of the book. That actually sounded like one of those quotes, didn't it? Uh, is that nearly everything done? I think I've covered everything. And if you can support us for our patreon that's even better uh because uh, so just go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and that is how we make things like uncanny hour and tips for existence and also the stuff that we make sure is freely available to everyone uh which obviously includes this show uh by people who can support us for we make about 24 uh is it about 24 hours worth of stuff probably a month it probably is about that 24 25 hours show uh, last year we did uh, over 400 hours of uh, of different shows about art science horror all manner of different things and uh, including over 200 hours of live stuff so support us for our patron if you can if you can't we will try and make things as freely accessible for you anyway hello helen chersky what happened this week in science then this week um first of all i i i'm sorry that your clegg flat cap has has been put back in the drawer you know i thought you were going to go through a much more entertaining series of hats and i have to confess i'm sad that the hats have gone away anyway this week in science <laughs> move the hat most of the hair went with it as well all of that strange you know which basically i could tug at the back of my head and i had enough for a small ponytail and imagine what kind of midlife crisis that would look at there's a point when if you're not when if you're not queuing up for the barbers it is a cry for help well, I'm glad, I'm glad you got help. Um, um, so this week in science, actually, this is a relatively recent one, but I picked it because um, it's, I think there was a moment of po positivity in the climate movement a long time ago, and I think everyone's forgotten it. And um, so in 1985, uh, this, this week, um, a paper was published in Nature with a very clear description of the ozone hole over Antarctica. So for those who might be alive who are too, too young, young to remember all of this, there was a period where scientists, so there's ozone, you kind of get ozone in two places. You get it at ground level where it's a pollutant and it's a bad idea. Um, and you get it up in the stratosphere where it does a really important job of basically being Earth's sunscreen. It keeps out harmful ultraviolet light. And these scientists, um, uh, I mean, it took a while, but these scientists had discovered that over Antarctica in the springtime, the layer of ozone in the stratosphere got really thin and it, and it was like it was a hole. And the problem is that if your planet's sunscreen develops a hole, 
you've, you've kind of got a problem. And actually, they didn't discover it as quickly as they should have done, because when they first thought they discovered it, they assumed the numbers were so low, they assumed there was a problem with the scientific instruments. Like, they didn't believe it could possibly go that low. So it took a bit longer than it thought. Anyway, so in 1985, in May, this paper was published, and it it had an enormous effect. People have been agitating about this for years. The reason for the whole was that uh, humans had been putting compounds called CFCs and chlorofluorocarbons, various similar compounds up into the atmosphere. They, they were found in, they're useful as refrigerants and in aerosol sprays. But after you've sprayed an aerosol, all that stuff goes up into the atmosphere and it basically catalyzed the removal of ozone, which meant those molecules sat there and then just broke apart lots and lots of ozone molecules. So one little CFC or its radical would sit there and just every ozone molecule that bumped into it would get broken apart. So there's a hole. So 1985, this paper is published. It's completely clear. There is a hole in the atmosphere. This is a bad thing. And by 1987, the Montreal Protocol, which was um, actually called the most successful international agreement ever written, Within two years of that hole being discovered, there was an international agreement to ban the production of CFCs. It was put into um, act it, into action in 1989. And basically, CFC production really did stop. And the ozone hole really has recovered over that time. It's thought that it's probably not going to get back to where it was until 2075. And, you know, there's little lumps and bumps along the way. But basically, it was a really clear successful environmental policy. We have a problem, everyone signs the thing, you stop making CFCs and the, the, and the ozone, you know, the problem is healing itself if you give the planet a chance. So I, and I just thought it's really interesting because it's a good time to bring it up because it's very possible to be quite depressed about climate things at the moment. You know, COP26 is coming up, there's all this talking and stuff and everyone's making it all very complicated. And it's true that the CFCs were an easier problem. There's a clear villain, sort it out, make it go away, you know, send out the bat call, Batman comes, sort the problem out, it goes away. Um, but actually... Inter massive international agreement was p possible. This was before the politicization of climate change. It's very easy to forget that climate change wasn't always this political. So yeah, so, so that paper was published 36 years ago this month. And it, al it almost happened so quickly. Within six years, all of that was in place and the, road, the world was on the road to the ozone, was on the road to recovery. And so I just think it's good to remember those things once in a while when, you know, when things you can do it. The point is you can make a difference. And there is no pay, there's no doubt that that paper catalyzed a huge amount of change. So that's, that's the, that was this week in science history. What a wonderful piece of, piece of nostalgia that was. Uh, and let's hope that, as, as you said, it, is, it's a, it has become so politicised, it's become part of that whole landscape of the culture wars, as, uh, as they're called, which, uh, yeah. Um, we're going to, uh, and we may well be dealing with more of that as well in the, in the, in the questions later on. Uh, also joined by Dr Susie Gage, who's done uh, lots of events together in, 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 and is senior lecturer at Liverpool University and also host of Say Why to Drugs and author of the book Say Why to Drugs. But first... First of all, Susie, hello, by the way. Hello. Uh, I'm glad you've got the piano behind you, because for those who don't know, Susie is uh, quite adept at playing various different theme tunes from late 70s and <laughs> early 80s horror movies, uh, both low-budget Americana and also uh, some of the Italian ones. So I'm hoping that every now and again, rather than answer a question, she'll express herself through music. Um, but I wanted to first of all talk, you've got a big paper out uh, this week, which is associations between adolescent mental health and health related behaviours. Can you can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, it's it's quite exciting. We've actually 
wrote this paper quite a while ago so it's really nice that it's finally out it's been one that's been sort of round the houses a bit um trying to get it published but we uh, myself and my colleague Pravitha Patale we did a study a couple of years ago that actually we wrote a blog about for Cosmic Shambles, um, which was looking at what's changed in terms of mental health and health related behaviours among 14 year olds born about 10 years apart. So we looked at two groups of 14 year olds. Um, one group were 14 in 2005 and one were 14 in 2015. And we compared the levels of depressive symptoms, substance use, um, sort of um, antisocial behaviours and things like obesity, um, perception of being overweight and lots of different sort of mental health and health related behaviours, I guess you'd call it. And we found some quite unusual patterns. We found that depressive symptoms had gone up in this time among 14 year olds. So 14 year olds in 2015 were reporting being more or were more likely to report depressive symptoms than 14 year olds in 2005. We found that things like substance use and antisocial behaviours had actually gone down in that time. And we thought that was quite interesting because quite often these things are posited as potential sort of causal risk factors for depression. So you think that substance use might increase the risk of depression. And if that was the case, then you wouldn't expect to see this pattern where one's going down and the other's going up. So for this paper that just came out this week, we looked at actually have the associations between these things changed over that time period. So we used the same group of ad or two groups of adolescents. So they're both um, longitudinal cohort studies. So one's called the Millennium Cohort Study and one's called Children of the 90s. And we used the data from these studies to try and look at see to see whether the associations between these things have changed and what we found was that yes they have changed and the associations between sort of uh, poor mental health and risky behaviors such as underage substance use antisocial behavior that kind of thing the associations have got stronger over these 10 years so if you are um, using tobacco or alcohol at age 14 in 2015, you're more likely to also report depressive symptoms than if you were using those substances in 2005. So while it's good that um, underage substance use has gone down over this time, it might potentially be a bit worrying because it might be increasing potentially inequalities or things like that if there's this small group of people for whom they have not just one problem but potentially multiple problems at the same time so this kind of these behaviors are sort of clustering together more strongly than they used to well we're gonna i think we've got a few questions so, which uh, uh, um, <coughs> have, have some relevance to that as well it's apart from your lovely et and your piano which is like you are already in a fantastic show and tell collage yeah you get given lots of et based toys if you call your son elliot is what i've discovered <laughs> <laughs> but you may notice behind me as well, I've got two cuddly um, distributions. I've got a normal distribution and a Poisson distribution. But that what I wanted to show you is the best present that Elliot was given when he was born is is this. I don't know if you can you see that? Oh, yes, <laughs> that's very. Is it, got, is, is it something specific on the y axis? Bog standard normal distribution baby blanket. Um, with a lovely uh, backing layer of just some equations. That's it's, it's so beautiful. And um, 
the wonderful psychologist Dr. Lucy Maddox made it for Elliot, and uh, I love it. So I thought it was a good, a good, appropriate show and tell for today. We should, we should probably just explain what a normal distribution <laughs> is because I think they're not very normal. That's, <laughs> true, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to do it, or shall <laughs> I? <laughs> oh, you. So it it's basically what you get. Thing, things may cluster around an average point, but there's a bit of um, leeway on either side. So if you look at height of individuals, you know, there might be an average height in the population, something a bit smaller, something a little bit um, taller. And if you, what the blue lines were on Susie's blanket are, that's a that's an actual number. If you count all the people who are perhaps between, I don't know, five foot seven and five foot eight and five foot eight and five foot nine, you get a bar. But as you make those um, bins narrower, you get a beautiful curve. And it, it predicts, it's it's useful because you can see, how, it's not just where the middle of the curve is, but how spread out it is, how much spread there is around the mean. So if you deal with statistics, which of course Susie does, uh, this is a really useful thing to understand. And it's clearly very important for her baby to understand as well. <laughs> that's very nice. Yeah, start them young, that's what I say. <laughs> well, you can have a nice follow-up on, on the first birthday, which will be the distribution of sleep over that first year as well. So you can kind of up <laughs> Date the blankets, I think, over time. Um, thank you for that. Uh, and uh, now we're joined uh, by Dr. Rachel Dunlop, who uh, now you're, I'm going to go straight to this, Rachel. You, you were a show and tell that was a possibility because you're not in the UK, you're in Wyoming. Um, and you are currently going out during the day to go and, um, and watch bears just for fun. This is not your research. This is so that could have been an incredible show and tell. Yes, I um, I do have a day job, but in my spare time, I am. Um, Currently, it's early spring here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and that means that all the grizzly bears are coming out of hibernation, and that means that they're coming out with baby bears, which is really exciting. And so there's a lot of bears in the local national park here called Grand Teton National Park um, that have grown up on the roadside, basically. So they're quite comfortable to be around cars and humans, and they hang around on the meadows right near the road, and so it's quite easy to get nice photos of them as long as you're 100 yards away from them and you don't bother them. So normally you're in your vehicle, you have a very long lens. Um, you don't want to, you know, confront the bears. That's not going to end well for anybody. Uh, and they're really, they've got amazing babies right now. There's um, quite a few that have very new babies that were born over the winter. There's some that have four cubs. So <laughs> for, um, there's the most famous bear in the world, actually. Her name is 399 and she's a grizzly bear. She's 25 years old. She's got four cubs right now. There's only been a handful of instances of um, bears in the wild having four cubs. So she's pretty amazing. Uh, and she's basically populated the national park with bears because she's had so many babies. So um, I'm doing a lot of early mornings and late nights right now to go and photograph bears. <laughs> so she could become the kind of almost it, it, in, in millions of years, the mitochondrial Eve myth of this particular bear family. This is Quite who possibly, three yeah. could be. Quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah, that's now let's true. find out. You're in Jackson's Hole, which uh, is uh, or Jackson Hole, which is great. Which is kind of sound because you you deal with brain chemistry as well. The fact that it sounds like it was named after a trepanning accident, uh, I, I think, is good and interesting. But this is what what do you do at the brain chemistry labs in terms of uh, in Jackson Hole? Yeah, so we are primarily focused on neurodegenerative diseases, and um, we're looking at ALS and Alzheimer's, so motor neuron disease or MND. It's called ALS in the States, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Um, and we're 
really focusing right now on trying to find a way to develop a diagnostic test for this disease because there is no clinical, there is no, um, rather there's the way that it's diagnosed is clinically by a process of elimination of other neurodegenerative diseases. There's no kind of um, blood test where you can determine, okay, you have this molecule in your blood, you've got this disease. And so it can be very difficult to diagnose for that reason. And it can require progression of the disease um, before people can be diagnosed. And that can take a long time and it can cost a lot of money. Uh, it can require MRIs and, um, like I said, progression. So it can take people up to anywhere between six to 12 months to even get a diagnosis. And you know, the lifespan from once someone is diagnosed with motor neuron disease is as short as two and a half years to five years. It's really short from the time of diagnosis. So these people don't have time to wait for a diagnosis to come in. So we published a paper last year um, where we um, identified molecules in the blood, uh, which are an RNA type molecule, and they made a fingerprint to differentiate people that have motor neuron disease from people that don't. And so we're trying to work on that. We're optimizing that right now. We're trying to get that into the hands of clinicians so that patients can get a way to get diagnosed really quick. And equally, people can find a way to eliminate that it might be ALS because, as I said, the way that motor neuron disease is determined is through an, um, a process of elimination of other diseases. So if there was a way you could unequivocally say you don't have it or you do have it, that would also be a huge step forward for patients. So that's what we're focused on um, here in Jackson Hole. And which, how far off do you think... Um because we often sort of hear about this kind of sci-fi medicine idea, because obviously like yeah. a, a human medic is always the second one to the scene, right? The hu the body's own systems are you, you know, they're, they're up to, they don't just have a problem and leave it, you know? So you, there's been talk for years of, you know, either types of stem cell in the blood or particular chemicals. How far are we, do you think? I mean, do, do, do you foresee a day when you get these tests early and these tiny signals could diagnose a lot of things or is that just is it just always going to be more complicated than that um so in recent years people have started looking at rna called micro rna which is a non-coding rna it's very small so when people talk about the covid um vaccine that's a messenger rna which is longer these these are very very short nucleotide sequences and the body actually spits them out of cells in what we think is kind of a message that they're sending between cells to talk to each other. It's sort of a communication device. And this communication could be um, just telling the cell to make something, make a protein, make an enzyme, or it could be sending out a distress signal. And so if we can harness these very early on in a pathology, even before people are starting to show symptoms, it could be a signal very early before we start getting to a point where people are showing up with symptoms where in many cases with neurodegeneration, at least it's quite often too late because there's too much damage at that point. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that this could be a diagnostic test in the next five years. Um, there's other, obviously lots of other labs working on this as well, and they're looking at orthogonal measures in addition to these little micro RNA, which they're called because they're so small, um, including looking at proteins that have changed at that time too. So I think once we sort of get an arsenal of these measures, um, I think it's quite within the realm of possibility to have this in the hands of clinicians in five years. Brilliant, thank you. And uh, I'll tell you what, we'll come back to your show and tell. Is that okay if we do it 
shortly. I'm going sure. to get to a couple of questions um, because you all had so many fascinating things to say. I want to make sure we get some questions and then in about 20 minutes we'll come to you, uh, um, which again could just be a bear walking in the background. But let's start off with, I'm going to throw this one to you, Susie. Uh, this is from Emily and Emily's interested in how can we ethically test the true effect of screen time on children? And of course, this has had so much coverage in, in newspapers, which has been quite frankly ill-informed or as 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 usual o overly excitable in terms of you know the possibility but i know everyone everyone with a teenager in particular thinks oh my, is that too much what's it doing what's the minecraft doing to their brains yeah i mean it's not just i mean it's not just teenagers i'm hanging out with a lot of mums of newborns at the moment and they're all we're all worried about screens and newborns as well particularly at the moment when you it's been much harder for you to sort of introduce your baby to humans other than like family via zoom and things like that so babies are in front of screens probably a lot more than ever before and that's the same for teenagers and, and all of us to be honest but it's a question that I, I care about a lot as well sort of professionally too and it was very frustrating when there was some coverage in a national newspaper of the study that I talked about at the top of the show and um, that had been written in a way to say oh mental health is worse in in teenagers and it's social media's fault where we didn't look at social media at all the, the data wasn't there in these studies that we were looking at and we didn't look at it we didn't report it yet this this person had managed to fit sort of figures about social media into this article to make it look like they'd lifted them from our paper and it was it was very frustrating and in fact full fact website did a sort of uh, clarification piece about the coverage of our paper which was quite nice so to show that actually we didn't show anything about social media at all or screen time or anything like that but to get to the question of sort of how to look at it ethically I think it's probably less there's probably less ethical risk than you or might think because it's very unlikely we could ever run a randomized trial of the effects of screen time and not just for the sort of ethical reason but because actually logistically it's really really hard to do this and it's the same with the sort of substance use research that I do it would be almost impossible to take a group of teenagers and get sort of a third of them to use cannabis a third of them to smoke cigarettes and then a control third to do neither and then look and see what happens to their mental health over time and that's obviously ethically is you wouldn't be able to do that but also it would be incredibly expensive to do that you'd need to follow them up over a really really long time it's not the case where you could if you're interested in the effect of screen time on mental health that's not one sort of experiments worth of screen time that you could run in a lab in an afternoon you're interested in the effect of screen time multiple times a day multiple days a week for months or potentially probably even years so that would be incredibly expensive to run and time consuming and also try getting people to adhere to the random condition that you put them in would be really really challenging as well so i think probably the way that a lot of people are doing this is observational studies so like the study that I was talking about earlier this is where you take a group of people um, a ra ideally a random group of people in your population and you follow them up over time and just look at what they choose to do now obviously this has problems in it because the reason that you randomly put people in different groups is because there are differences between what people choose to do other than just the thing, other than just screen time. There are going to be other differences between young people who use screens a lot versus young people who don't. And that could be that they, the ones who don't use screens as much might be doing more after school activities, for example. They might have different setups at home, socioeconomic status. There's like 
there's so many different confounders that that's what we call these kind of other differences that you need to take into account. And statistically, you can you can take them into account, but you need to first of all, you need to know what they are, and then you need to have a good measure of them in your data set. And you can never be 100% sure that you satisfy both of those criteria. So ethically, I think we're not, it's not so much of an ethical problem in terms of doing this research. It's more a kind of logistical problem of actually, it's really hard to do good quality research on this topic because there are so many of these variables that, that you need to take into account. Yeah, I always think that, you know, ages existed, I've had much worse attention span. And then I've remembered what I've always been like in my whole life. And I've realized, no, it's just another alibi for a flippity gibber brain. Um, I'm going to ask Rachel, this is from Michael, who says that uh, he knows that you were heavily involved in uh, um, kind of trying to get out much better inflation, fighting against anti-vaxxers uh, when you were in Australia. And now that you're in America, I was interested to know how, whether you see a difference in that anti-vax movement or whether you see it being very similar in terms of of, as a worldwide movement? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think I've thought about this quite a lot. And I think the major difference about the anti-vax movement between Australia and America is that they have access to a lot of resources here, including money. Um, there's some very powerful people in behind the anti-vax movement. Um, everyone would remember Andrew Wakefield, who now lives in Florida, uh, in America. Um, there's people like Dr. Oz, who is a powerhouse of media and, um, you know, he's got his own television show. So the reach and the funding that these people have is huge. Um, that's not the case for Australia. In addition to that, there's a cultural difference in as much as there's a much of a focus in America, of course, on free speech, um, which is a huge part of communication here. Australia does not have free speech instilled in our constitution, by the way. So that's not really a thing in Australia. Um, so um, Australians seem to be a little bit less tolerant of, um, of, of speech that is less science-based, if you like, or evidence-based. Um, but I also think the fact that we have socialised medicine in Australia has a big impact on the ability of the anti-vaxxers to disseminate their information. So um, because um, our health is um, publicly funded, it's within the interest of the government to uh, instill a lot of preventative health measures. So they are able to do things like... Um, uh, penalise people if they don't get their children vaccinated. And Australia has done that, in fact. Uh, they introduced a, um, a piece of legislation a few years ago called No Jab, No Pay, where essentially if your child was not up to date with their vaccinations, they would um, hold back tax benefits for parents. Um, and then that followed up with another piece of legislation called No Jab, No Play, where children could not get access to um, childcare if they weren't up to date with their vaccinations. And so that is accepted by the population in Australia because it's seen to be a benefit to the community. It reduces the budget of the um, public health system. Whereas of course in America, there isn't any socialized medicine. So it's um, the, the government is not that interested in saving money on healthcare in that regard. But I think also really importantly, um, is that, you know, Australians um, under the umbrella of a group called Stop the Australian Vaccination Network, which is what I was heavily involved in, uh, we made a, a huge effort to um, 
put ourselves out as experts and put ourselves into the media and make ourselves available to speak on these issues when they came up. And we got in touch with journalists. We made ourselves available. We were um, we appeared on radio, television, wherever it was. And we we in an, in effect we changed the narrative um, to shift away from false balance. So most people would know that false balance means giving equal weight to two ideas that are not equally valid. So it would be like getting on someone who wants to talk about um, the, the earth being round and then getting someone on saying, but it's flat. Now, those two ideas do not have equal weight in science. So giving two people 50% of time to talk about them is called false balance. So um, unfortunately, that happens a lot in journalism. Um, journalists seek out someone who's got a different opinion. But of course, science is not based on opinions. Uh, and so SAVN, or Stop the Australian Vaccination Network, we not only made ourselves available to journalists to talk about these issues, but we also made it clear that we wouldn't go on if they spoke to somebody who was an anti-vaxxer, because we said, this is not a debate. This is not an opinion. This is not what's your favourite colour. This is about evidence. This is about science. This is about you know, people dying and getting sick if they don't get vaccinated. So if you want to have a television program with this person on, I will not appear with them. And that was really interesting because quite often I would get producers sort of sounding quite reticent and saying, okay, well, that's fine. We won't have you on. And I'd say, okay. And then 20 minutes later, they'd call me up and say, um, actually, we've just told the other person they can't come on. Can you come on instead, please? And so we were able to sort of change the way that the mainstream media dealt with those issues um, and before we did that they would um, they would have anti-vax people on and they would call them vaccine experts when in fact they were not. So I think that would be a gargantuan task to do in America given the population is 10 times the size, given the media is much more heterogeneous. I mean at home you know, 70% of the media is Murdoch. There's a lot fewer journalists. There's a lot fewer people to deal with. Um, you know, it, it would be a full-time job for the rest of your life to do something like that. So it, it's, a, it's a combination of things. It's cultural. Um, it's access to funding. Uh, and it's a much smaller movement in Australia. There's really only a handful of people that are anti-vax, whereas here it's just huge and it's an industry. And these people will protect that. They make a lot of money out of selling anti-vaccine ideas. I mean, look at Andrew Wakefield, but there's others as well, um, Dr. Oz and Dr. McCola. So... Yeah, that's that's one of the, that's a few th reasons why it's just a, a huge task in this country. Thanks. I was going to ask you, Susie. Actually, just thinking about in in the UK, uh, in terms. I mean, yeah, we do have that problem, which is news is basically novelty, and therefore it's far more novel to have someone talking uh, rubbish. Uh, because you've got thousands of people who may well actually know, well, no, no, this is the story. Oh, that story hasn't changed yet. That's boring. So, I mean, I think, you know, with Andrew Wakefield, for instance, it wasn't just the normal kind of people you might expect uh, in some of the tabloid newspapers and others who were writing kind of quite pro pieces. You know, that was kind of across the board with, with Andrew Wakefield. There were a lot of people who were, oh, well, there seems to be something in this. Do you feel that it's getting dealt with better in the UK now? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think with Andrew Wakefield as well, it was, I mean, that was backed up by a Lancet paper for a, a long time. It took a long time for that paper to be retracted. And I think that that really muddied the water in terms of sort of the idea of, of false balance. It was It was harder to argue that it was false balance when there was this sort of paper in a flagship journal that was 
that was sort of backing up the Andrew Wakefield and his and his ideas. Um, in I think there's a lot of really really great science journalism out there, and generally what what when I because I used to write for the Guardian, I used to write a science blog for their website, and quite often I wrote pieces sort of challenging or or sort of um, correcting pieces that I felt were misinformation and generally those were very rarely pieces written by science journalists they were pieces written by other journalists who who sort of um, had to had to just fill something in quickly like for example there was a piece about um, this um, thing that was basically a divining rod that was being used in I think possibly Egypt um, to do some like look for some cancerous cells or something I can't remember the full details but I mean it was complete woo but it had been written in a very kind of accepting way of like oh look at this exciting new technology um, but not by a science correspondent by the Egypt correspondent um, and I think it's when things like that happen that sometimes um, things can get can get misreported and be misleading rather than being sort of science journalists looking to be sensationalist although obviously that still does happen but then it happens with researchers as well there's that great study that has that found that of the most misleading newspaper articles they tended to come from the most misleading press releases which tended to come from the most misleading abstracts of or the sort of brief summaries of the article that actually the scientists or the researchers themselves had written so there's sort of the blame isn't in one place quite often it's everyone sort of tweaking it a little bit because the way the way academia is at the moment this could be a very long rant so I'll control myself but um we are as academics kind of pushed towards novel findings and shiny research and that kind of thing because you, that's how university funding in the UK anyway is, is attributed is by this thing called the ref where we're all judged on the like impactness of our paper and you only get a four-star paper if it's like internationally groundbreaking and new and most research can't possibly be that because it's like Michael Gove saying he wants everyone to be in the top 50% of school children it's like it's just you know back to our normal distribution that's not going to happen <laughs> that's late woebegone isn't that late woebegone Garrison <laughs> Keeler thing where uh no one is average yeah uh, um but that's it's very when you said science journalists that's the thing that really made, made my ears prick up because I was thinking that's one of the problems isn't it that we have a lack of I mean as you said when you used to write a Guardian science blog and all of those things which which are are, are not there I mean like if I had to write about press release I because I'm an idiot so I would constantly be thinking oh this is really interesting and I would I would not have the wherewithal and the training that is required I think to be able to look at a piece of information and understand what is the evidence-based bit what is the bit which has been highlighted which actually is precarious and yeah it's uh sorry i'm waffling on and i have no right to so let's get to nina's question who is nina is uh age nine and uh nina would like to know if our body is constantly replacing our cells where do the dead ones go i'm going to throw that one to you helen um ask the non-biologist that's good well i i i just felt it's one of those ones you're bound to know about because you're such a polymath well, so our bodies are very good at recycling, but I think a lot of waste. So I would say I don't I don't know the answer to this. My my guess would be that some bits will get recycled in some way into other cells, but quite a lot of the bits will just get excreted because the leftover bits aren't needed anymore. But I suspect that our bodies are quite good 
um, at using the building blocks from before to to make something new. But it's a really good question, and I don't know the answer. It's mainly dust. Can I jump That's in there, told. Robert? You certainly can, Rachel, because I know that one of the things is people always have that. They'll say, and of course, brain isn't even our same brain as it was seven years ago. It's entirely new cells. You know, there's all of these different things that people read about in kind of books and magazine articles. Yeah, I mean, um, Helen's right. It, it Largely, they are recycled because um, the process of manufacturing components to make up a cell is very energy hungry. And so there are very specific mechanisms in place inside cells to recycle those components. Um, and two of those things have actually been the subject of Nobel Prizes. They've been so important that, that it's been discovered. Um, one of them is known as autophagy. Um, which is directly translates as self-eating. And this is a process whereby the cells have a controlled removal of um, components that they no longer need or that are damaged. And that allows the cells to release those things, particularly amino acids, which are the components of proteins. So you, most people might know that a protein is made up of individual amino acids, almost like a pearl necklace, and they're all connected and folded into different shapes. And those different shapes will predict which protein they make in the end. Those little components called amino acids are really important for the body to make everything from enzymes to cell membranes to um, different types of cells. Um, and so the body needs those. So they will break those down using um, a process called autophagy, which is controlled removal of those um, components. Uh, and like Helen said, any sort of metabolic byproducts of that will be excreted if the cell doesn't need them. Um, but yeah, most of those things are just turned over and used again. And, and that particular process is what can go wrong in some diseases. For example, in things like neurodegenerative disease, where if the cell can't turn those over effectively and recycle them and use them again, they tend to build up inside the cell a bit like junk, like garbage. Um, and that can result in the cell getting overwhelmed and it will die. And if it dies in an uncontrolled manner, it just releases all those components into the body and they can then sort of move into the peripheral space and cause damage. And then that can kind of begin a chain reaction of damage, which can then start killing cells and that can lead to pathology and disease. So it's extremely well controlled process. It's extremely um, precise and it's extremely important that it doesn't go wrong um, in order for the body to maintain homeostasis or maintain health. Thank you, Rachel. Um, question for you, Susie, from Nancy, who would like to know, I think probably a lot of people think about this, which is in terms of the statistics on teenagers uh, with mental health conditions, how much should we take into account the fact that perhaps it is now uh, an easier time than it might have been, still not easy, but an easier time uh, to talk about mental health conditions and how much we need to factor that in during that research? Yeah, I, th I think that's a really, really good point. Um, what tends to happen with research, though, is it's not it's people aren't do you feel depressed or that kind of thing. It's more specific kind of individual questions like over the last week, have you felt um, like you were getting little joy out of the world or um, were you finding it hard to complete your daily tasks because of your mood, that kind of thing. So. Yes, I think it is very important. Like it's fantastic that we're able, better able to talk about mental health, and maybe that um, might make people feel more able to discuss these symptoms. But in terms of the questionnaires that are used, 
have been the same over over the years and they ask about sort of specific symptoms rather than overall kind of um do you think that you suffer from depression and i think maybe more people are seeking help for depression but using these sort of questionnaires it seems like the under underlying rate is going up as well um and i think there's lots of lots of factors have changed over time and and that is something that we that's partly why we did this research to see um, whether rates have changed the last 10 years. And actually, we want to expand it back further to take in other cohorts as well that were earlier to see, partly because of this reason that perhaps as it's getting easier to talk about, maybe we're seeing an increase for that reason. Personally, that I don't think that is why we're seeing this increase. But yeah, it is definitely something that's worth considering. Uh, next question for you, Rachel. This is from uh, Blake, uh, and Blake is interested in Stephen Hawking and saying, uh, you know, he had a neurodegenerative degenerative. I can't say that, and that's one of the reasons I didn't go neurodegenerative disease. <laughs> There's too many D's in there. Uh, that was thought that would probably kill him in his twenties, but he lived into his seventies. And uh, as rather delightfully, Blake said, to live into his seventies, still doing mad physics, uh, which I love. And uh, so what? Uh, why in his situation where the predictions were as you said that it would be a very short amount of time from from diagnosis and uh, actually you know over 50 years yeah so motor neuron so ls is um is now being thought possibly to be a spectrum of of um individual diseases in, in a way it's because the that if you have the disease, there is a huge variability in the symptoms they'll have, in the way that they progress, in where the disease actually initiates in the body and their lifespan. Now, obviously, this is really a nice link back to talking about statistics and normal distribution. There's always going to be, you know, the majority of people that have this disease will only live between two and a half and five years. But there's always going to be those ones at the edge of that curve that um, live for a shorter amount of time or for a longer amount of time. Um, Stephen Hawking's was thought to possibly have a juvenile form of of motor neuron disease, which is slightly different to the one that is adult onset. Most people uh, who get motor neuron disease get it in their sort of 40s, maybe 50s, um, and he was quite young when he was diagnosed. Uh, so he also lived for a long time um, with a lot of care that some patients don't get access to. So he was in a wheelchair, but he had a voice recorder. He had all those things that um, could help him ex extend his life. But this disease, because it's not, no one really knows, except in a very small amount of cases where there is a, a, a clear genetic familial link. So there's a, it's passed on through the family. That's only about 10% of cases. Most of it is what we call sporadic, which means we don't know why people get it. And so that means that there's no way to pinpoint um, how it starts, where it starts, what, and, and therefore no way to treat it either. So it becomes then a spectrum of different symptoms that um, is very, very hard to treat. And so, of course, it can have very different effects in, in a lot of people. So he was one of those people that fell on the end of that curve um, that Susie showed in the beginning. Um, and lucky for him, he lived longer, but that's certainly not the, um, the mean or the average for most people that have the disease. 
thank you. Uh, question for you, uh, Susie. This is from uh, Sebastian. This question about caffeine. Uh, Sebastian's had to um, give up caffeine uh, due to some medication that he's on at the moment, and he said he's had splitting headaches for a fortnight. Uh, he googled what caffeine actually does to you, narrowing the veins in your brain, which seems bad. So, how is caffeine bad for you, and why is he having splitting headaches? <laughs> Well, he, I mean, his answer, answered his own question about why why he's having splitting headache, headaches is um, that he was probably dependent on caffeine and he's probably going through caffeine withdrawal now. Um, and yes, caffeine is a psychoactive substance. It's a mild stimulant. So it's sort of similar in that regard to nicotine, which is another mild stimulant. But um, nicotine in cigarettes, it's not the nicotine that's harmful thing in cigarettes it's all the other the sort of the tar and the heavy metals and the formaldehyde and all sorts of other things that are in that are combusted when you burn when you set fire to a cigarette in terms of uh is caffeine bad for you you can sort of in in too big a dose it's definitely bad for you so it is possible to overdose on caffeine although not from teas and coffees and even not really from energy drinks but these days you can get caffeine supplements so you can get powdered caffeine and with powdered caffeine then obviously it is much easier to overdose. it's quite often used as supplements in for sort of for sports to give you that sort of kick um or give stimulant boost um in a in a legal way um longer term is caffeine bad for you there was a paper that was published suggesting that it might be um, a risk for cardiovascular health but then other research has found that caffeine might be protective for cardiovascular health so it's one an observational study just watching what how much caffeine people choose to consume and people who drink more or less coffee are likely to be different um, in lots of ways other than just their tea and coffee consumption they might also do more exercise they might um, eat more healthily and that kind of thing all in all it looks like potentially the um, there might be a small protective effect from two to three cups of tea or coffee a day but um, there doesn't seem to be a negative effect from much much more than that but again it's sort of it's not definitive um, but but of the people who use caffeine who drink tea and coffee almost all of us are probably dependent on it and that is why if you don't have your morning coffee you can feel really ropey and actually you think that the coffee sort of wakes you up and gives you energy and maybe makes you a bit sharper but almost certainly that's just bringing you out of withdrawal rather than actually the coffee or the caffeine itself having a positive effect we're all of us going into caffeine withdrawal overnight and then that one in the morning um when i used to work at bristol i had a colleague who'd, who's done a lot of research into this and he um gave people who were either regular regular caffeine users or naive um, non-caffeine users um, either coffee or a decaf that they thought was coffee and then got them to do sort of reaction of thing and he found that for the people who weren't used to having caffeine the caffeine made no difference at all um, but for the people who were used to it if they were given a placebo they really really struggled on the tasks so and I think we could probably all relate to that I know that um, I didn't drink coffee while I was pregnant and it definitely took a while to um, to get used to not having it and yeah headaches if, when you um, stop using caffeine are really really commonly reported side effects.
Um, I just wanted to also say that I was going to hold up the normal distribution then, but um, I've been joined by, I don't know if you can see Iggy here, but I know there have been a few times where I've been on and I've mentioned him and not shown him to people and then the comments, people have got very angry. So here you are, here is your cat fix. <laughs> well, there we are. We were waiting to have that reveal of what her child looks like and it turns out you actually gave he gave birth to a cat. Yeah. So uh, that's what the rank was. Wonderful. Uh, the, uh, I'm going to throw a question to you, Helen. Then, Rachel, I'm going to come to you for your show and tell, which I hope I've suddenly realised isn't something that melts uh, in room temperature much to show now. But, um, Helen, this is based around your um, – last week we talked a little bit uh, about the Science Museum and uh, the fact that they their new climate change uh, exhibition is sponsored by Shell. And uh, Helen put up uh, a little kind of thread on, on Twitter. And uh, this made Daryl – he wants to know – he said, I, I read your thread with interest about the Science Museum and uh, the fact that you linked to some articles that talk about how emissions have not peaked. Uh, uh, he wants to ask uh, when, Helen, you think peak emissions will be and how much worse it will get. Obviously, I don't have a crystal ball. There's basically there's a there's a, the the reason this is a critical time to discuss this is because there is such, such a variety of paths at this point. I think anyone who doesn't understand the energy revolution underway isn't paying attention. So if you look at the speed at which renewables are being re renewable capacity is being built, it's enormous, and it's not getting the subsidies that fossil fuels get, and it's still cheaper uh, for the consumer. So there is a gigantic change in the way we uh, are getting the energy to run our society. Certainly in the UK, it's a little bit slower in places like America, where the energy companies, even though renewables are cheaper, don't seem to be using them, which is a bit weird. Um, so the point is, this could happen really quickly, and we could reach peak oil really quickly. Um, if people choose to, it's cheaper, there's less there's less local pollution, right? You're not burning, you've not got, um, you know, thousands of little burning devices in the streets pumping out nasty chemicals, right? That, quite apart from all the climate change things, it'd be quite good to get rid of the local pollution. So it's, it's better for lots of reasons. It's just a case of how quickly do we push to move the dial? Um, I think what the real thing that's going to get rid of the peak oil thing is that um, it's actually it's actually countries not wanting to deal with the Middle East and not wanting to have to deal with wanting control of their own energy supplies and not wanting um, to have to deal with political actors who are difficult in other ways. Um, you know, at the moment, European Western governments feel they have to be nice to Middle Eastern countries and not make a fuss about women's rights, for example, because of trading relationships. You get rid of those trading relationships, you change a lot of other things. So basically, I don't know about when peak oil is. I do know that oil companies, whatever happens, have massive amounts of stranded assets, which means that they are valued as companies based on the oil that they have located, but they have not yet exploited. And they are all assuming they're going to be able to get that out of the ground and get money for it. And they are not. So if you've got pension funds in oil, get them out. Because as soon as they get found out, those companies are going to be worth nothing. Um, and, and what's happening with current oil companies is they're just putting off that moment. So so it could move really, really quickly. And that's why it's important that Shell and BP and others actually change things because they can change things really quickly. They're getting caught up by um, a lot of companies, smaller companies that are coming up behind them that are just bypassing the whole issue. And I think they're going to get left behind. So in a way, I think big oil is already a dinosaur and um, they don't really realise it. They're clinging. It's like, the, you know, the emperor's got no clothes. They're clinging on to power. And there's actually 
the, the change is coming so quickly that they're, I think now they're just going to get lost and then peak, peak oil will come very quickly. So so I, it's hard to say, but buy your electricity from renewable energy suppliers. There's lots of them, Octopus, Ecotricity, there are oh. others, um, and push for it. And it will happen quickly because... It, it has to happen and and why be why be held back by the dinosaurs so i wouldn't i wouldn't in a way the oil that the oil thing is just like leave it in the last century move on to the new systems because they're better and you know what they're just going to get left in the dust and good riddance to them frankly if they're not going to if they're not going to shift to renewables and actually genuinely take it seriously not waft around the edges with um oh well we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050 which by the way means they think they're going to invent a way to take carbon out of the atmosphere so they can keep burning it unless they take it seriously leave them in the dust i, I genuinely think in 10 years we're going to be astonished at, you know it's, it's going to be like the fall of the east india company it's just going to be gone um so let's all buy our renewable energy supplies and uh electrify our cars and all of that and hurry it all up that's what i think Thank you, Helen. And that's, I mean, that is one of the worries when we were talking before, and as you mentioned in that that thread as well, with things like the Science Museum exhibition being sponsored by Shell, is that it might overly focus on some of those ideas like carbon capture, etc., while missing out some of the other story. We died. I haven't seen it. I don't know. But that's one of the kind of concerns in terms of whether that changes the exhibition itself. Go and look at a website called Culture Unstained. I mean, do look around at lots of different places, but Culture Unstained done a lot of campaigning about some of these issues as well. And then go and look up stuff that Helen's done and lots of 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 other people as well who know what they're talking about rachel now your show and tell well i thought i should show you a bear since we talked about bears can you see this photo of this bear here oh yeah yes so this is a bear named um well her mother is named blondie and this is a four-year-old sub-adult grizzly bear now i want to make it clear that this photo was taken from 100 yards away with a 700 millimeter lens and cropped very tight. So um, this is not the last photo I took before I passed away from being eaten by a bear. Um, but it is, I mean, these animals are absolutely the most beautiful animals. You know, I, I've lived in Australia my whole life until the last six years and I never even imagined I would see a grizzly bear in the wild. And then I came here and the first time I saw them, I was absolutely just overwhelmed that they're so wonderful and it's it's such a horrific thought to think that there are people in this country who are focused on trying to delist these bears so they're currently listed as in um at risk and endangered and there are people that are trying to take them off the endangered species list so that they can trophy hunt them and i just don't understand why you would want a head of that on the wall of your house it's just unfathomable to me um we are extremely lucky in this area that we have them just wandering around the backyard um, and I get to see them 45 minutes down the road and they're such wonderful creatures. They must be respected because they will tear your face off. But, um, you know, we, we need to preserve these animals and I, there are people in this town that make that their focus. They take photos of them, they teach people about them, they talk about how to respect them, stay away from a hundred yards from them at least don't harass them when they have babies but enjoy them and appreciate them and you know these are part of the environment that we need to preserve so that's my show and tell and I think also that's a that's a very good in terms of why should you respect something because if you don't it's going to tear your face off perhaps we need to see more but maybe that's the only thing that's going to move these things on is uh and now so I go straight from that to Adela who's aged eight and I'm going to throw this one at you Helen because it's a biology question but it's in the sea so uh Adela is very interested in knowing what kind of molecules octopuses ink is made from 
so I know more. Oh, very good, Susie. <laughs> there we are, Susie. It's uh, all the props. Props. And she will obviously finish by playing Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid on the piano. We can't wait. So octopus ink. So I don't know. I think that they, it might vary a bit by species. I know a bit more about squid ink because squid ink. Um, so I don't I don't know exactly what octopus ink is made of. I suspect it's a protein of some sort, but I don't know. It clearly is very good at absorbing light, whatever it is. Um, but squid ink is interesting because it's sepia. So there is a particular uh, species of squid in the Mediterranean uh, that is kind of it produces brownish ink. And when you look at those old photos that are sepia photos, it's the same sepia. So there's a colour of this ink uh, in in the um, in the it is a squid, not cuttlefish. It is a squid in that case. Um, I think has 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 sort of been. Um, commemorated if you like in the style of photography but again i'm not doing very well with questions today i uh, so i suspect it they suspect it's proteins but i can look that up and put it on twitter because it's quite an interesting question and it, they are slightly different colors for different species so so octopus ink can be super super black um but some of them are slightly brownish uh but i will find out and put it on twitter let's double check with rachel and susie but either of you uh, have you got an octopus ink answer or nope uh, there we no, go this That's... is this is outside my area of expertise, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, I think that's quite fair enough. Um, I'm so we've run out of time, and I would like to apologise to Andy, Maria, and Lorraine, and Albie, and uh, Rosalind, and Nick. Uh, we will get to your questions. We will. Uh, we we will save these questions. There's there's loads more to. Uh, in fact, we have got time very quickly actually from from Albie. Uh, throw to you, Susie. Which is um, Albie was just interested. Uh, he said I read recently a link between childhood obesity and uh, mental health issues. Um, do you have any uh, anything to back, back that? He was worried whether this was just scaremongering and kind of connecting things or whether there is actually uh, some research into this. We looked at that in our paper that was published this week and, and we did find that the association between the two had increased between 2005 and 2015. However, it's worth pointing out that we didn't in any way look at causal associations we just looked at there is a link but understanding what that link means is much more complicated than just saying um one causes the other so from what we did it's impossible to say whether uh depression causes an increase in obesity obesity causes an increase in depression or whether something earlier in life might influence both your likelihood to be obese and your likelihood to develop depression and the link that you see between the two is just sort of an artifact of that earlier thing happening that causes both it's impossible to tell that so while it does look like there is a link understanding what that link actually means we're a little bit further away from doing that at the moment i would say Thank you very much. And thank you, uh, everyone, for joining us as well. Thank you to our producer, Trent Burton. I'll tell you a couple of other things. Uh, I was going actually, live gigs may well be occurring. So uh, if you live near Walthamstow, I'm playing the Red Imp on the uh, 20th of May. There were five tickets left on Friday. So uh, if you get a chance, come along. And if you live in Trowbridge or near Trowbridge, I'm going to be playing uh, Trowbridge Town Hall, hopefully, um, on the 29th of May. Uh, Helen, what are you up to? Uh, what, what should people be looking out for? for you? Oh, well, so first of all, it's melanin in uh, all cephalopod ink. So it's the same colour that makes us tanned. There you go. Uh, that's the answer to that. So uh, the Ocean podcast, Ocean Matters, is out. Um, I'm doing quite a few Intelligence Squared interviews at the moment. And that is probably, I think I don't don't have I don't have light. I will also be at the Cheltenham Science Festival actually with an event about rivers and estuaries and we get to walk along the River Chelt as well so if you're in or near Cheltenham I think it's the Friday of Cheltenham Science Festival I will be being very enthusiastic about rivers and estuaries 
Fantastic. Rachel, where can people go and find out more about your work and uh, also talking about the anti-vax campaigning, etc.? Um, I have a website called Dr. I should Rachel. say, by the way, so I should say anti-vax campaigning. I should say, I'm going to change it again, anti-anti-vax campaigning. I missed, missed <laughs> out an anti there. That's correct, yes. It's important to make that distinct, distinguish that. Um, site called drrachie.com that has a lot of my research, a lot of my photos, everything's there that you need. Thank you. And Susie? uh where should people go obviously say why to drugs is still available um and bookshops are open again uh and uh, people can also get get listen to all they're fantastic they're, they really are they're just just packed with with information and interesting stories that they're brilliant what else are you up to um not up to a great deal at the moment for a combination of pandemic and new motherhood means that i've taken quite a step back on doing things but yeah hopefully um well, I think the paperback of Say Why to Drugs will be coming out at some point this year, although I'm not 100% sure when. So hopefully I'll be doing some stuff around that when it comes out. Um, yeah, but otherwise I'm having a little bit of, well, I would say chill out time, but that's absolutely not the, not the case at all. <laughs> but chill out time from uh, this kind of thing. So, yeah. Thank but you, you so much. you can find me on Twitter and, and have a chat at four in the morning. I'm usually awake, yeah, that's true of many people who are involved in Cosmic Shambles for all manner of different <laughs> reasons that you'll find that 4 a.m. is a good time. Thanks very much for watching, everyone. Uh, I can't remember what we're doing next week, uh, but I can say that uh, towards the end of the month, we're going to be doing, uh, I think I can mention it. Um, I, uh, I Well, if I can't, I am anyway, but I think Helen Sharman's going to be joining us uh, because it will be the 30th anniversary of her trip to space. And and uh, kevin fong's joining us as well kevin fong of course is i hope you've been keeping not only did you do 13 minutes to the moon which is one of the greatest pieces of radio i think that has uh been made a really remarkable documentary series about uh, apollo 11 um but also his work as a doctor during the pandemic and some of the stuff that he's been trying to highlight there uh, has been incredibly important um it's amazing that he's able to has managed to do so much uh while having that strain as well um so that's coming up uh, we'll tell you what's coming up uh next Sunday as well, normal time, 3pm. Don't forget, Tips for Existence comes out, a new episode on Wednesday with Adrian Owen, as I said, talk, uh, hopefully Uncanny Air will be before that about Silent Running with Stuart Lee and Mark Kermode and Gemma Arrowsmith and Linda Merrick and others. And uh, there'll be, oh, there's loads more stuff coming up. Anyway, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.